Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air. It seems like it had been a while since I was with you all last, but here I am, ready to go for another upcoming um, commentary on founding rivals Madison versus Monroe, the Bill of Rights, and the election that saved a nation. I tell you, um, there's not a dull moment, especially as we are now entering the uh, post-Revolutionary War era in the lives of both James Madison and James Monroe. While on one hand it's it's not a bad idea for there to not be a dull moment, but all the uncertainty does bring... What do you call it? Uncertainty can can cause people to not think straight. It can cause people to panic to the point where they may not have a boundary as to um, when to stop panicking. But these are very, what do you call it, not ordinary times. They are um, trying times, to say the least, because... You know, yes, we could go through one week here where our government is doing okay, but then the next week could bring nothing but uncertainty to the point where it could only be a matter of a short period of time before we have no government at all. So our government has been hanging by a thread. Yes, we may have some good leaders, but our government is flawless. I mean, well, not flawless. I take it back. Our government is filled with flaws. This Basically, the system that's in play, as we will find out in the aftermath, maybe not so much with tonight's podcast, but going forward, is that we're going to eventually learn why the Articles of Confederation is just simply no longer valid. So our leadoff uh, question for tonight is the following. What dispatch would Congress receive from overseas in Europe on September 12th of 1783? Well, remember, folks, it does take about two months for um, mail to come over to um, North America or to the United States from Europe. So remember, folks, uh, we're not looking at next day air mail or two day priority we got a long ways to go before we ever get to that service, I can assure you that. But uh, what I do know is that um, a dispatch letter came to um, the United States on September 12th of 1783. It was a letter stating that the Treaty of Paris still had not been officially signed by the delegations from the U.S. and Britain. But the irony to it is that this letter was officially dated from July 27th of 1783. So I just figured it out. When uh, we received the letter from overseas on September 12th, and this was um, officially signed, or not officially signed, but the letter itself was officially dated from July 27th, that means that it, that we didn't receive it till um, almost seven weeks after so if you look at it from July to August is one month and September 12th, that's one and a half months. So basically 47 days, almost seven weeks. It's a miracle they even got the, this uh, mail uh, onto itself as well. Now here's a good bonus question right here. 
would James Madison's tenure in Congress include the ratification and signature to the Treaty of Paris, ending the Revolutionary War? Uh, I hate to say this, but the answer is no. It's a shame that he um, wouldn't be around uh, to be able to um, take part in the uh, ratification and signature to this treaty. But we also have to remember, too, that under the Articles of Confederation, uh, congressmen can only serve three, uh, one three-year term limit in a six-year span. So, as unfortunate as this is for James Madison, he also knows that the treaty itself, along with other matters, would be resolved under new members. So my next question to you all is this. Did the Treaty of Paris get signed come September of 1783? Yes, both delegations from the U.S. and England signed the treaty on September 3rd of 1783. Okay? And here's the irony. This letter doesn't... The, the letter that was dispatched um, from Europe over to America that we received on September 12th, little do we know that nine days earlier, <laughs> the treaty had been officially signed. So that means there again, we're looking at um, all, just over five weeks from the time it was first sent over that, um, that the uh, treaty would be officially signed. Um, this is something that probably most of us don't know, but I, I am going to mention it. There were four men from um, who made up the U.S. delegation which signed uh, the Treaty of Paris. Does anybody know which four men they were? The answers are the following. Benjamin Franklin, John Jay, John Adams, and Henry Lawrence. Why is John Jay an, uh, an important figure? Well, it turns out that he would become the first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. But of course, in 1783, we don't have a United States Supreme Court, but you all should know that he would become our first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court from 1789 to 1795. Henry Lawrence um, is someone that most of us probably would not um, know of, I happen to know who he is. How do I know about him? Well, I well for starters, he um, played a, an important part with our um, with forming our nation's government. While he wasn't a delegate to the United States to the um, Congress that signed uh, the U.S. Constitution, uh, he is um, he comes from a very uh, well-to-do family in South Carolina that is related to the uh, Middleton, Rutledge, and uh, Pinckney um, families. He did marry into one of those families. So when you think of Rutledge, uh, Pinckney, and um, Middleton, uh, you can also think of Henry Lawrence because he is uh, somehow interwoven with one of those three families. But there is a, a town in South Carolina called Lawrence, South Carolina, up in the uh, northwestern part of the state that is on the outskirts of Greenville. And, of course, we all know about John Adams and Benjamin Franklin. But nonetheless, these four men made an ultimate sacrifice. By signing the treaty, though, the treaty itself, 
ironically, would not just go into effect overnight. It wouldn't go into full-scale effect until May 12th of 1784. Now, you know, most of us, or rather I would hope that all of us know that if that there's one branch in Congress that has the power to ratify uh, treaties, not only ratify them, but approve of them, that is the Senate, being the upper house of uh, Congress. But remember, in 1783, it was actually the states that would go about ratifying treaties, including the Treaty of Paris. So how many states would it take to ratify this treaty? The answer is nine. And on January 14th of 1784, the Treaty of Paris was unanimously ratified. And what I mean by unanimous, folks, that means that it was broad-scale support 100% all the way through. No oppositions, no um, no uh, nays, if that's a, an easier way to sum it up. So here's a, a bonus question to think about. Would James Monroe be involved in the process of voting to ratify the, the Treaty of Paris? The answer is yes. You know, yes, it was unfortunate James Madison couldn't take part in it, but at least he will know, or we shall know, that another Virginian, a, a soon-to-be prominent Virginian, had the part in, had a part in being able to uh, ratify this treaty. Now, and, and this is important for James Monroe because this is a matter that he himself did not take lightly considering his level of commitment to the battle or let alone fight for independence. Remember, folks, James Monroe had served um, valiantly uh, for about uh, four years with the uh, Continental Army in the American Revolution, American Revolutionary War. His, um, his presence was felt at um, Brandywine in Pennsylvania, as well as Germantown, to uh, Monmouth Courthouse, as well as Trenton, including um, serving as the lead man in defense of Virginia towards the very end of the uh, war, especially during that time when he was in charge of the uh, d courier dispatchers who made their way uh, from Virginia into the Carolinas, and they would set up uh, command posts within a 40-mile radius. And Monroe himself was present with George Washington on multiple instances from the time span of 1776 to 1779. Remember, folks, he um, literally put his life on the line at the Battle of Trenton when um, taking part in in uh, launching the um, surprise attack on the Hessian soldiers, Monroe himself was shot, and had it not been for the doctor that was nearby, he probably would have died. And at the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse, it was disastrous. It was a disastrous beginning for the Continental Army, but had it not been for Monroe's leadership in um, in getting um, near the the enemy to where he was able to um, prevent a uh, surprise um, counterflank um, attack on the right side on the right side of the um, continental line. He basically helped save not only George Washington's life but that of the um, units who could have been um, attacked in an uh, un 
foreseeable ambush. So James Monroe may not have been a general, folks, but his leadership on, out on that military field during this four-year span is something that he will not take for granted, given that he is going to take part in voting on ratification of a treaty that will forever end the American Revolution as we know it. Another bonus question to, to uh, take into consideration is this. What other prominent Virginian was serving in Congress at the same time James Monroe himself was? Well, the answer is none other than Mr. Thomas Jefferson. It was through Jefferson that Monroe himself attended events ranging from social galas like dance room balls to socializing with members of Congress and their families. The social circuit itself would enable James Monroe to establish connections that would have long-term significance. So remember, folks, you know, not everybody, and I've learned this at Colonial Williamsburg, when you went to a ballroom dance at the uh, governor's palace, not everyone was invited. And secondly, if you're going to be invited to a dance, you better be able to show the guests how uh, capable you are with not only um, being talented with dancing, but how to go about doing the dancing moves correct. Because um, when you go to a ballroom dance, it's not like uh, Dancing with the Stars or America's Got Talent. If you don't know how to dance, um, then you are really setting a bad example for yourself, but you're also embarrassing those who are of uh, the same distinguished rank as you are. So... For James Monroe, attending events like ballroom, um, like dance room balls, to to just uh, social galas in general, it is a very very essential way to go about making a good name for yourself. Another question to take into consideration is this: What did serving in Congress enable James Monroe to do? Well, he saw the country's political issues from a federal stance. You know, when we say federal stance, we're talking about the national level. Whereas at the state level, it's only the state that you represent and the local interests um, surrounding not only your state cap capital, but the localities or um, the outlying areas on the outskirts of your capital. But basically, by looking at the political issues from a federal stance, James Monroe was um, able to get a better grasp on the problems which impacted our nation as a whole. In other words, he saw, he saw this um, outlook as an approach that could be best, in my opinion, it's best described as us, we, ourselves. In other words, how do the federal problems impact those at the state level. It's not just a national problem, it's a nationwide problem. And how can the matters that are uh, pressing our nation get resolved not only on the federal level but the state level so that in the end both, both levels um, can achieve um, results that, um, you know, for example, federal aid going to um, states. Whereas the opposite 
would pertain to those who didn't uh, represent Congress, they often viewed um, their interests as something like I, me, myself. In other words, I'm only concerned about myself. I don't really care about the rest of the uh, population. Well, under the Articles of Confederation, I, I hate to say this, but I think what was a, uh, a huge weakness under this Articles of Confederation was that there were too many people absorbed into that I, me, myself attitude. And that was in large part because Congress itself was so restricted as to what it really, in, in more ways than, than what we really would like to know now, is that uh, Congress was so restricted, the states were so fearful of giving Congress so much power to the point where the states would feel that they were living under another form of tyranny given that we have already just defeated the mightiest empire in the world from a militaristic approach. This is where uh, breaking um, old, um, what do you call it, old ways of thinking is going to um, be an arm and a leg onto itself uh, for Madison. And not just for, not just for James Madison, but even for James Monroe. I'll mention more about that here um, in a little bit. But another question we should think about is this. Did each state have its own commercial regulations when it came to handling trade with other states? Believe it or not, it did. You know, nowadays Congress has the, the power to regulate um, all forms of commerce, you know, interstate, meaning uh, interstate commerce going from point A to point B, uh, from Point A to point B, meaning it's going from like Virginia to North Carolina, whereas intrastate commerce is the commerce that only goes from point A to point B in Virginia. Then, of course, Congress can regulate foreign commerce on its own terms, but in the 17, early 1780s, under this Articles of Confederation, even Congress itself can't even regulate uh, trade. And and to back that up, Congress was never given the power to establish a central trade policy. So there you have it, which would have taken precedent over states' rights. The, the United States was at the low end of the totem pole when it came to being excluded from beneficial trade practices involving European nations, most notably England. And if you think that's challenge, awkward enough, how about this one? If 12 of 13 states raised tariffs against Britain and the 13th state was in support of uh, or was opposed to raising tariffs against England, then the 13th state would profit by providing England with lower rates for imports. So there you have it, folks. A dangerous um, system of... Um, of uh, government's inability to function on the national level. Well, in early 1784, Thomas Jefferson departs for Europe to become ambassador to France. Jefferson's departure gives James Monroe greater confidence in making his presence felt. Now, remember, Jefferson's not hovering over Monroe. But Jefferson has laid the uh, building foundation for Monroe to now say to him, hey, 
you've got what it takes to go out there and make your name known to everyone else. Seize the moment and don't look back. Now, um, a bonus question here for you all is this. What did James Madison decide to pursue in April 1784? He decided on re-entering politics by getting elected to the House of Delegates, and he would represent Orange County. And for those of you who aren't familiar where Orange County is, it is uh, not far from Albemarle. It's not far from Louisa, um, Spotsylvania County. It's not far from uh, Fluvanna, or even uh, it's not too terribly far from Goochland either. So given where James Madison lived and where he represented, it's in today's time, it's about 30 miles away from uh, Charlottesville. But yes, he is uh, representing Orange County. What was one of um, James Madison's main concerns upon returning to the House of Delegates? One of his uh, concerns was taking up what was uh, referred to as revision of statutes. Now, what are statutes? Statutes are um, another term for uh, laws, or statutes are uh, principles. Basically, statutes are also another name for um, legal codes. In other words, revision of statutes means going in and reviewing existing policies and trying to determine, hey, is the existing law that's on book still valid or is it no longer uh, relevant? If it's no longer relevant, then how do you go about reforming the existing law on record to make it more up to, up to date with the uh, present day um, political outlook? So, what I found interesting here is that the revision of statutes had been first introduced during uh, the time that Thomas Jefferson served in the House, in the House of Delegates, that is, but once he leaves to go off to France, then James Monroe will uh, pick up where Jefferson uh, left off. But the revision of statutes, as I said just a moment ago, refers to revising existing laws on the books, which would include modifying or uh, partaking in a complete overhaul of uh, anything that needs um, modification or total correction. But here's an example of where James Madison, where, of where this came into play. James Madison was a member to the Committee on Religion. The committee had received a petition from the clergy of the Episcopal Church on June 4th of 1784, the clergy had requested the Episcopal Church become the state's official religion. Now, this is where um, Thomas Jefferson would, if he were still, if he had not left for France and knew about this, this is where he would have adamantly said, I'm sorry, but we cannot have one church, one religion come in and say, hey, we want to be the dominant uh, or not just the dominant, but the state's official religion. To him, this is going to be seen as a direct violation of church and state. You know, it's one thing for church 
to have a um, strong leadership uh, role within the community, but the church in Jefferson's eyes should not be involved, directly involved with the government. In other words, the church cannot be influencing the government on everyday affairs. And the government should not be telling people what religion would be the actual, would be the official state religion. So this is where church and state, if, if, if gone unnoticed, would um, intersect with one another and stick their noses in each other's business to the point where neither institution could make independent decisions on its own behalf. So James Madison, though, um, it's an interesting situation here for Madison in that um, the clergy want wants authority. Uh, they want to go about um, using their authority to regulate all spiritual matters throughout the Commonwealth. And on June 16th of 1784, the Committee on Religion su supported in favor to have the Episcopal Church become the state's official religion, but the irony to it all, folks, is that no further action was ever taken. Maybe that's a blessing right there. Maybe there were a handful of um, of uh, delegates in on this committee that realized um, if we allow the Episcopal Church to become the state's um, official uh, religion, then we are going... Um, totally backwards to pre-revolutionary war times when the Church of England, or a.k.a. the Anglican Church, was the official, um, was the official church on behalf of the state of, Virgi of the colony of Virginia. Now, if any of you all are wondering what commonwealth is, um, common means um, political, wealth means many. In other words, everybody can be bound to a common political ideology, but how do you go around and spread the wealth to many people? In other words, if, we, if you live in a commonwealth, it, all, it revolves around uh, politics, but how do you go about distributing the wealth in an even um, manner to all the people? And there are only four states that are referred to as Commonwealth. One of them is Virginia. The others are Kentucky, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts. So remember that for any of you young people out there, if you're taking the test and, some, and a question gets asked to you, two questions. Number one, which four states in the United States are referred to as Commonwealths? Your answer is Virginia, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts. And what does Commonwealth mean? Common is political, wealth, many. Well, you know, in today's time, Congress has what are called recess periods where uh, le legislators go back to their districts or to their, or if in the case of a senator, he or she goes back to their state and addresses uh, to constituents um, the needs that um, are, are, that are um not only impacting their um, constituents on a um, personal basis, but they are also discussing with their constituents what's going on in Washington and what legislative matters are being addressed. Of course, in today's world, I can only imagine um, 
just how unhappy uh, many constituents are at the fact that they do feel ignored by their um, legislators. But to answer this question in the early 1780s, yes, Congress did have recess periods in between the seasons. But when it came to reconvening, <laughs> there was never any 100% guarantee that a maximum or minimum number of legislators would be present to conduct official business. Because think about it, folks. I mean, there weren't any laws on the books that would say, okay, you have to have a maximum and a, and a minimum number. So legislators could just show up at their own expense, but without the proper number. And throughout the summer and fall of 1784, the U.S. did not have a federal government in full operation gear. That's like the equivalent of a modern-day government shutdown when um, Congress and the White House can't agree to a budget. But can you imagine here in 1784 that, you know, throughout the um, summer and uh, fall, there is not a um, full-time um, U.S or should I say a full-time federal government in full operation, operational gear. So think about this. What if our, um, you know, we're constantly moving uh, capitals, which may not be a bad thing, but what if one of those um, temporary makeshift, makeshift capitals got attacked? How are we going to defend it? After all, didn't the year before we had an uh, angry mob of um, veteran soldiers um, attack um, the Capitol in Philadelphia demanding for back pay due to their um, extended uh, services when in fighting the American Revolutionary War. And, the, and this angry crowd drove the uh, people out or the legislators out. So if we can't, if the legislators don't have a way of protecting themselves, then how can there be a way to ensure that government can function at all. I mean, yes, as a legislator, you need to protect yourself, but you've also got to protect the people you represent. So that's another inadequate um, issue right there that's uh, going to be uh, seen as a flaw to the Articles of Confederation. But the good news to report is that on November 1st of 1784, a new session of Congress convened by meeting in Trenton, New Jersey, it would be James Monroe's first visit to the city since December of 1776. Think about it, almost eight years. What was unique about December of 1776 when James Monroe was in Trenton last? It was the Battle of Trenton, New Jersey, which um, basically helped uh, save, the, uh, save the American Revolution. Not just the American Revolution, but the war itself. So for James Monroe to have been back in Trenton for the first time in eight years. Hopefully he saw um, Trenton in a different, um, in a different uh, outlook compared to what it had been eight years earlier. Now, ironically, on November 30th of uh, 1784, that was when Congress finally achieved a quorum or a full maximum number of members to conduct business. So, here we are, November 1st, where a new session of Congress would convene, but it, we have to wait 29 days later, almost four weeks, pretty much, 
till we finally get a quorum. But we have to remember too, folks, we've got people coming from South Carolina and Georgia. It's not like they could just fly on an airplane and get to Trenton, New Jersey the same day. So I'm not sure exactly how many members there were present at the very end of November, but the bottom line is they have enough people to get a quorum. Now, during Congress's adjournment, James Monroe used his time wisely by traveling north, most notably to New York State, where his journeys would take him from Albany, which is the present-day capital of New York, to Schenectady, which is on the outskirts of Albany, all the way to Fort Oswego on Lake Ontario, to as far west as Fort Niagara and Niagara Falls. While Monroe himself was in awe by the natural wonders like Niagara Falls, he also became very concerned about the lurking dangers that could lie, that uh, that had the potential to um, be so bad that our country's national security would have been at stake. And knowing that there was very little we could have done to have even prepared for the unexpected. Well, what what could James Monroe have seen in New York State that would make him think this way or feel this way, let alone? Well, he saw how... Um, the British had still maintained a presence by keeping forts in Schenectady all the way to Fort Niagara, which could have allowed them to strengthen relations with Indians. And, and many of y'all are wondering, well, what Indian tribes exist still at this time? Well, there are still members of the League of uh, Six or the League of Iroquois, which was the powerful six-member Indian tribe which had um, the Seneca, Cayuga, Oneida, uh, Tuscarora. You had the um, Canandaigua and the Mohawk. So that powerful Indian nation tribe pretty much covers all of New York. And any of those, um, what's left of those tribes could team up with the British to get back at the, um, at the Americans as a result of uh, destroying uh, villages, most notably around the period of 1777 and 1778. Uh, not long after we had beaten the British at Saratoga, uh, General George Washington had ordered forces to destroy uh, Indian villages along what is now known as the uh, present-day Finger Lakes region, um, in, as well as as far east into what we know as the Mohawk Valley um, that would include uh, areas like Rome and Utica, uh, Fort St what we now know as Fort Stanwix. So all of those Indian villages were destroyed by American forces to prevent them from harboring uh, to the British. But but then again, even after the war itself, James Monroe knows just how dangerous. Uh, how dangerous the potential it would be for the British to um, reestablish relations with Indians that would create further problems to a fledgling Congress that has no way of uh, curtailing the uh, spread of, um, of what we might call uh, domestic terrorism in today's time. 
And it is fair to say that a lot of Europeans by now are becoming all the more convinced that America is was spiraling out of control given she was lacking clear sense and direction, especially involving the fact that there wasn't any stable government and that, and that the fledgling government was tinkering with anarchy. I, I'm not. I, I'm really not surprised that we were on the brink of anarchy. If you don't have a Congress that has any kind of proper authority, then how can, then how can you expect um, to have any kind of proper government that would be able to function at any given time? Not only when there isn't a crisis, but when there is one. I would have to say that yes, while it was great that we that the Treaty of Paris was signed, but what I can say is that just because you sign a treaty, it doesn't mean that you go back to living as though um, war itself had never happened from previous years, but you can't assume going forward that, that everything else will uh, work out. It's like the old saying goes, don't assume anything. Another bonus question to think about is this. What European nation had control over the Mississippi River? The answer is Spain. And why was Spain adamant on refusing to allow the United States to have the rights to to access or navigate the Mississippi River? Well, the answer is the following. American settlers had acted out unlawfully towards uh, the Spanish. And James Madison himself had proposed a law allowing extradition for U.S. citizens who had committed crimes against other nations unless the individuals directly instigated, in this case, the Spanish, into a war. So in other words, if um, if John Smith had uh, committed a, a crime against another nation in terms of, um, say, vandalizing another nation's uh, a piece of property on another nation's soil, then John Smith should be allowed to come back into the United States to face his uh, crimes. But if it was a crime against, unless John Smith had been uh, directly instigated or provoked, then perhaps it would be up to Spain to decide, hey, whether or not John Smith should be tried on their soil. True or false, was James Madison the first of any legislator in America to pass veterans legislation? The answer is yes. The veterans legislation that he passed helped create a Virginia state pension that would be generated towards those who had been wounded or disabled as a result of service to their country. The amount of money would be would have to be decided by the governor and the council. So in other words, there was no set um, amount on how much John Smith or uh, Tommy Jones could um, be given on a yearly basis. It was all left up to the governor and his council of state to decide uh, how much money would be um, given out. I'm, you know, I'm not really even sure how uh, successful this was long term, but still, what a bold move on James Madison's part to be looking after those who had sacrificed so much from our country for our country.
Lastly, to end tonight's podcast, did James Madison and James Monroe share a great deal of frustration and concern regarding the state of governmental affairs? Yes, both men saw Congress as a weak institution where many of its members were simply not up for taking on the tasks before them to ensure our nation's survival. You know, for those of you out there listening, does that sound anything does that sound or resemble anything similar to what we're seeing now, given that we're in the midst of a terrible uh, pandemic? Aren't we seeing Congress squabble? and fight over things that they shouldn't be fighting over? Shouldn't they be doing more to get relief packages to families who are in dire need of further assistance? Yes. But the big difference here, but the big difference between now and 1784 was that we didn't have the same kind of Congress that we know today. And yes, while there was bickering going on in 1784, the bickering that was going on was a matter of um, it was a ma- a lot of things. The bickering that went on revolved around self-centeredness. It, it involved around stubbornness. It revolved around the inability to um, go forward with wanting to make the necessary adaptations to su- survive long term. But here we are in modern day times with far greater resources. And even with far greater resources, our government still can't um, sometimes seem to meet the basic needs of the American people. I'm not trying to sound skeptical, folks, but that's the reality of the world that we're living in right now. And there are a lot of families who are in dire need of, um, of uh, federal relief. They're in dire need of um, further extenuation of unemployment benefits. They're in further need of how to... Um, of, of any kind of COVID relief they can get. So here we are in, in modern day times with far more resources, but yet we seem to always come up on the short end of the stick. It's not because it's, and it has nothing to do with the fact that we can't even try. It's the fact that we have so many politicians in this, I, me, myself, um, world. They think they may think that they are representing the people, but they're getting too caught up with interest groups, interest groups who are basically telling them how to vote. Well, in uh, 1784, we didn't have any interest groups, thank goodness. But yet, I think it's fair to say that the state legislatures or the states alone were like interest groups. Think about it. They had their own set of laws. There was no uniform rule of law to abide by. So each state got to do its own um, governmental regulations on tariffs, on treaties, leaving the Congress out to dry. Well, folks, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. And even in this time of crisis, we still have to um, believe to ourselves that we're going to get through it. We just have to hope that... Come January, when a new Congress convenes, that regardless of party affiliation, that new leadership will come into play and somehow make things better than they are now. And I do believe it's fair to say that both political parties in today's world, both parties need reform. Now, I'm not here to go on a political tangent, 
but I am here to tell you that um, I, I don't have any problems whatsoever if both uh, parties undergo major reforms. But then again, in 1784 and three years down the road, our country was in need of dire uh, reforms. But the difference then is that um, many of our um, great uh, prominent statesmen were willing to compromise, and that word is missing greatly in today's unstable world, being one where too many of our politicians live in that I, me, myself, um, live in the world where their attitudes are one of uh, I, me, myself. In 1784, or after 1784, when we go into 1787, it's going to become more of a us, we, ourselves approach. It may not have happened overnight, but it came through, and it worked out, and what do you know? Through hard work, we still have a, 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 govern, a governing binding document that's still intact after 233 years. Well, folks, thank you for listening, and, I, and again, I'll be back on the air again here soon, and uh, what we're going to be talking about in the next podcast session is how James Madison and James Monroe started uh, getting to know one another on a personal level, because I'm sure many of you all are wondering now, hey, when will these two men actually meet in person? And when, and, and when they do meet in person, what are they going to have to offer to one another that will result in a strong long-term friendship, even if they may find things to disagree on without being disagreeable. Well, we're going to get to that here in the next podcast session. But anyways, uh, good night for now, and take care, and God bless.